ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Tuesday, November the 21st. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. A global search has started for a new boss for the embattled telecommunications company Optus. The chief executive, Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin, quit yesterday almost a fortnight after 10 million customers were left without phone or internet coverage for most of the day. But one expert says it's not the only change that's needed, as Elizabeth Cramsey reports. On the streets of Brisbane's CBD, there are strong feelings about Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin's resignation. I'm really disappointed that she's, ha- to, that she's been driven down that path that it wasn't one person's problem, it was a company problem. She was just the figurehead and they've just chopped her off. Um, but they've gone out for her from the word go. It was almost like somebody had to be blamed. She's going to be blamed. Sure, she's the CEO and the figurehead, but it was pretty ruthless. Others are less sympathetic. Yeah, I think that was the right decision. Uh, in the end, like, you're responsible for your own ship, so, yeah, right move. I think she made the right decision because as the CEO of a company, you bear the responsibility of what happens in your company, even though it may not directly be your fault. So I do believe that she did the right thing by resigning. Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin says her resignation is in the best interests of Optus, but with the outage the company's second blunder after a cyber attack last year, can a new leader repair its reputation? Corporate governance expert Helen Bird is a senior lecturer from Swinburne University's Law School. There is a face-saving exercise going on here, and that is that you've had this bad publicity and you think that you can stem the wound by changing the leader at the top of the organisation. But the, the equally, we will say, no, it's not the solution, or at least the entire solution, because in addition to changing the leader, you have to address some systemic issues inside your company. The issues that caused your company to have these outages and also in the past the cyber hack. And she's identified another problem for the Singapore-owned telco. There is no Optus board. There is a board of executives inside the Australian management, but the actual the governance and the running of the corporation is devolved to Singtel in Singapore. So to say what do they have to do, the first thing they have to do is actually implement an Australian board, a a structure that is accountable to Australians and to the regulators of their carrier licence. That's a huge step in the right direction and that would actually mean there was somebody here to answer to the criticisms levelled against the company. And then reassess its risk management processes how it was possible to have the outage it just experienced and not have any plan to deal with that at a sophisticated level is is just beggar's belief. The company claims to have a good risk management process, but we don't know anything. And part of the reason we don't know is they have no disclosure, they have no obligation to do it. Unlike, for example, Telstra, who is a public company and therefore we find these things out by simply looking up its website. And there's another lingering question. Associate Professor Toby Murray from the School of Computing at the University of Melbourne says he's still puzzled by Optus's explanation that the outage was caused by a configuration change. It's not really clear, for instance, why they didn't test that configuration change in advance or why they weren't able to predict that it was going to have these kinds of catastrophic consequences. The Chief Financial Officer, Michael Venter, has been appointed the interim CEO. 
That report from Elizabeth Cramsey and Nick Grimm. The head of the corporate watchdog has criticised Optus's failure to have a plan to deal with the nationwide outage. The chairman of the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, Joe Longo, says a crisis plan should have included how to ensure essential services, like the emergency triple zero number, could be restored quickly. He's speaking here with our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. Well, it's obviously another reminder of the need for major institutions like Optus to have well thought out um, operational and technological resilience plans. The other thing about Optus that I think is quite significant is even a fairly routine uh, system upgrade can lead to a major disruption. It's not just hacking that we need to be worried about. So major institutions, when they're doing upgrades, um, got to be really careful. Outages are an ever-present risk for all businesses and also institutions. And for Optus, there's been massive damage. Did Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin have a chance of turning this crisis around and surviving, but did she need to go? Well, I think that's a matter for her and the board. Uh, what I would say about it is that it's really very important that institutions like Anoptus, any major corporation, has a very well thought through incident response plan. The, the community doesn't expect things to go perfectly all the time, uh, but when they don't, go well and they have a major impact on the community or a section of the economy, it's absolutely essential that the, the communication of what is going to be done and is being done about that is clear, it's comprehensive and it's quick. Was Kelly Bayer-Rosmar and quick and effective enough with that crisis communication? It's a matter for others to decide whether or not that perfectly happened in Optus's case, but I think that's really important. People want to know that when things go wrong, um, whoever is running that institution is on it and can restore confidence. Well, speaking as ASIC chair and a veteran of the corporate world, what did you expect to see from Optus? I think with the benefit of hindsight, the communication could have been clearer and in more in real time. It's clear from what little we know, the extent of the, of the disruption was entirely unexpected. Uh, and I think that's where uh, Optus was wrong-footed, so to speak. They just didn't expect a disruption or outage of this magnitude. What concerns did you have, though, in particular when it comes to the O emergency service? That went out as well, and there didn't appear to be any backup, no redundancies or off-sites or backups in the cloud. Well, that's a really significant issue in and of itself. My understanding is there were 228 calls to O. Uh, but clearly the triple O uh, feature is something the whole community expects to work the whole time and it didn't work here. You know, we live in a world where we are very dependent upon systems, technology, processes. What, what I would say is that uh, incidents like this one and the DP World one are, are sort of reminders that we can't be complacent. Optus isn't listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, but Optus in Australia is um, governed by the Corporations Act. Could they face any penalties? Well, at this stage, it's very early. We've made it clear to boards around the country that I expect them to have a cyber resilience plan in place and a cyber response plan. So I think that's the approach we're taking at the moment. And that's Joe Longo, the chairman of the corporate watchdog ASIC, speaking with Peter Ryan. The second Australian member of a foreign fighters unit in Ukraine has died while battling Russian forces. The ABC's confirmed Victorian man Joel Stremsky was killed last month as more details emerge of the English-speaking group of military veterans he was serving with. Here's defence correspondent Andrew Green. 
Over recent weeks, the city of Avdika in eastern Ukraine has seen some of the fiercest fighting in the war against Russia. The region is where a group of foreign fighters known as the Chosen Company has been carrying out rapid and highly dangerous strikes against the invading forces. We're all foreigners from all walks of life with all like various or no military experience and it's essentially we're just like a like a shock or like storm unit will just hit them hard and fast before they have time to prepare. In this interview with military podcaster Matt Williams, an anonymous Australian member of the unit that's attached to Ukraine's military describes their highly risky operations. So far it's it's worked really, really well for us. We push into these positions and the Russians either run away or they're so surprised about what we like how fast we've hit them that they in some instances hide and wait for us to pass but the abc can reveal that last month two australian members of the chosen company were killed during a russian artillery strike already this week queensland man matthew jepson has been publicly identified as the first casualty now the abc has confirmed victorian man joel stremsky also died in the october attack known to colleagues as Jay, he was also an Australian Army veteran. In a statement, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade says it's providing consular assistance to the family of an Australian who died in Ukraine. We send our deepest condolences to the family at this difficult time. Owing to our privacy obligations, we are unable to provide further comment. A source connected to the Chosen Company claims New Zealand's honorary consul in Kyiv has been providing on-the-ground support to other injured members of the group because Australia does not have any diplomatic presence in Ukraine. The Shadow Defence Minister is Andrew Hastie. I think it's time that this government sent a message uh, that we are friends with Ukraine, that we support their efforts and... That would mean re-establishing a diplomatic post there in Kiev. Last month, officials from DFAT told a parliamentary hearing it was still too dangerous for staff to work in the war-torn country, despite diplomats from some other Western nations returning months ago. Andrew Green reporting. There have been angry scenes in Israel's parliament as relatives of hostages taken by Hamas last month accused some in the government of playing politics with their loved ones. That's because some Israeli politicians are floating a plan to execute convicted terrorists. The debate comes as the United States President Joe Biden indicates he believes a deal to secure the release of some of the hostages is near. Correspondent Adam Harvey has the details. The plan to introduce the death penalty for terrorists is extremely controversial in Israel. The last person executed here was the Nazi Adolf Eichmann more than 60 years ago. To debate it now, when Hamas holds more than 230 hostages, is madness, says Gil Dickman. His cousin is one of those captured by the extremist group. Dickman and a group of hostage relatives went to the Knesset to make their point. As a parliamentary committee, debated the proposed law. That's him yelling, you bring them home. Even talking about this law, specifically when there is no way that it could be passed, is putting our families in grave danger. The plan is backed by Benjamin Netanyahu's ally, the ultra-conservative minister, Ben Gavir. Mr Dickman says the scheme has no reasonable chance of success and believes Ben Gavir is playing politics. 
There have been rumours for weeks now that at least some of the hostages will be released through a deal negotiated by the United States and Qatar in return for a pause of Israel's relentless military operation in Gaza. There's been so many rumours and there's been psychological terror from Hamas. Relatives of many of the hostages went en masse to Tel Aviv last night for a meeting with Mr Netanyahu's war cabinet. It's the first time the key decision makers have met such a large group of the hostage families. Yael Engel's 17-year-old nephew, Ophir, was taken by Hamas. The purpose of today's meetings is exactly like the purpose of everything we do the last six weeks, and the purpose is to bring them home as quickly as possible. She's worried the government has lost its focus. We hear them say that uh, they want to ruin the Hamas and to bring them home. And we want to hear and know that they first want to bring them home and then do whatever they need to do. The military campaign continues. The United Nations estimates that at least 1.7 million Gazans have now been forced to leave their homes. This is Adam Harvey in Jerusalem for AM. They're a tiny pest, but they can take a huge toll. Yellow crazy ants have taken hold in North Queensland and one council is attacking them from the air and the ground to stop them causing more damage. Lily Nothling reports. Delmar Cahoon's property has been overrun by tiny invaders. Oh, yeah, lots of eggs there. I can certainly tell them from the other ants now. She's felt helpless trying to stop the yellow crazy ants from spreading across her rural block on the outskirts of Townsville. So I haven't bothered gardening, shopping. Look at my <laughs> veggie patch. I'm not going in there and dig. There's too many ants. It's just crazy. Within months, they were inside her home. You'd see them crawling on the ceilings, down the walls. I'd be lying in bed. You know, oh, there's an ant, pull it off and we'd be sweeping them up daily, the dead ones. Yellow crazy ants are one of the world's worst invasive species. They spray formic acid to kill their prey and can form super colonies that can devastate native wildlife. We'd come home and there was always a dead smell everywhere. And it took me a while to realise it's, it's the ants, yeah, that are, are just killing stuff. The insects thrive in warm climates. Bev Job from the Invasive Species Council says infestations have taken hold in Townsville, Cairns and the Whitsundays. They um, will literally wipe out ecosystems from the ground up. You'll see all your ants and insects disappear, small reptiles, ground-dwelling birds, etc. But on top of that, they're also a significant impact to things like agriculture, industry and the impact on the price of selling their property with the yellow crazy ants on that property has been significant. The Townsville City Council's been given $12 million of federal funding to run a four-year local eradication plan. Using helicopters and drones to access challenging terrain, a task force has begun by targeting 500 hectares of infested land. Councillor Maury Soares says it'll be the first of five baiting blitzes in the Townsville area over the next year or so. If we don't get on it now, it may no longer be an eradication potential program, it'll be just a control program. And we have parts of the world where they can't get rid of them. We don't want to be in that space. We want to be able to wipe them from our uh, uh, area completely. For residents like Delmar Cahoon, the first round of baiting is already making a difference to the number of ants around her home. 
But Bev Job from the Invasive Species Council says a longer-term funding model is needed to safeguard communities and biodiversity into the future. With invasive species, you, you can't just leave a few. It's like rabbits. If you leave a few, they will continue to expand. Invasive Species Council's Bev Jove ending that report from Lily Nothling. The sun on your back, sand between your toes, the scent of salty air. Australians love the beach. Now, new research has put a figure on exactly what a surfing lifestyle's worth, estimating it provides a $1.5 trillion boost to the global economy, mostly by improving the mental health of surfers. Nick Grimm explains. It's just after eight in the morning and Sydney woman Judith Duncan has already made the trek across town to Manly Beach for her regular surfing lesson. And for me, yeah, it's my saltwater therapy to keep me sane. <laughs> it's just helped with balance and all of that sort of thing. Like mentally, physically, it's, it's really good. It's a feeling echoed by other surfers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has a lot of benefits for health. You just get really used to starting your day that way and feeling pumped and... And if you don't get it, particularly for like a few days in a row, you do start to get a little antsy and cranky. I surf because it is easily the best sport to do. Uh, it's a disconnection from the outside world with my, can't have my phone, can't be texting anyone. And then it's just a really nice, healthy lifestyle. And just, like I said before, disconnecting from everything. There's a huge mental health benefit, I think. Observations like these have formed the basis of new research which has set out to quantify exactly how valuable surfing can be. So the basis of this research is that anything that's good for your mental health is worth money. And it's big money. According to Ralph Buckley, a professor emeritus at Griffith University's School of Environment and Science, those feel-good feelings that come from an activity like surfing contribute around $1.5 trillion to the global economy. So what this new research shows is that when you're doing the economic comparisons between essentially different kinds of infrastructure and urban planning, there's a big economic component to surfing which hasn't previously been included, and that's the economic value of improved mental health. And all those people out there catching waves are doing their bit for the economy. Yes, they are. And, and actually that's, you know, you say that tongue-in-cheek, but it's not tongue-in-cheek. There are people out there surfing who run $100 million businesses. And there are people out there that run the government, you know. There are people across every component of society. And these days, whatever kind of job you do, if you're permanently grumpy and stressed, you can't do a good job. Professor Buckley acknowledges it's not just surfing that produces that surge of positive thinking. Other outdoor activities could do the same. Perfect. Literally couldn't have been more perfect today. But for surfer Rachel DaCosta, the best antidote for a busy corporate life is catching some ideal waves. Friendly waves is the way that I describe them. Sometimes they can be big guys, chunky guys, but today they were just absolutely friendly. That's how I speak about them. I'd be like, oh God, big guys coming, big guys coming. <laughs> but today they were treating you right. Today they were friendly. <laughs> Surfer Rachel DeCosta, Nick Grimm with that report, and that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lang. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. 
If you feel like your standard of living has been getting worse over the past year or so, you're not alone and you're not wrong, unless of course you're a baby boomer. Many in that generation are still living it up. Today, the ABC's national political lead and Insiders host, David Spears, on what the government's doing on the cost of living and what it could do to close the generational gap. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.